You are listening to the In Defense of Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for In Defense of Plants comes from listener donations. For instance, today's episode was produced in part by Clifton, Leticia, Ron, Carl, Tim, Lisa, Susanna, Lisa, Brent, Homestead Brooklyn, Brody, Kevin, Sophia, Plant by Design, Mark, Katharina, Sammy and Sven, Renz, Bendix, Erin A., Holly, Mountain Misery Farms, Caitlin, Rosanna, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, and Margie. If you would like to give your support to In Defense of Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I'm really excited because yesterday I was out and about poking around in the woods and I finally stumbled across a plant that I've been wanting to see for over five years now. I'm talking about the one-flowered broomrape, Orobanchi uniflora. And I first heard about it at the Allegheny Nature Pilgrimage in downstate, or, well, I guess the rest of you would consider it upstate New York, but regardless, someone had shown me a picture of it and I had no idea there was such a species in the eastern woods. And try as I might, just could not find it in my home state of New York. I moved out here, and apparently it's more common because every once in a while, during the spring months, someone will post a picture onto like an Illinois botany website, and I'll ask, hey, where'd you see that? And then they'll go tell me, and I'll go look for it, and of course I didn't find it. And yesterday I was out doing the same thing. Someone had given me really good detailed directions on where I might be able to find a few patches, and got out there, looked around all day. It was a great hike, saw a lot of awesome species, a few platanthera orchids were starting to come up, even uh, some club mosses, which aren't too common here in Illinois, but... Did not find the Orobanchi, so I gave up. I said, you know what, this has been a good enough afternoon. I'm just going to head home. And on the way home, I stopped at another park just because there's a really good ridge, I guess, on the side of the road that you can stop and look up at. And I walked over and I looked down and lo and behold, there was the Orobanchi. And in fact, the more I looked, the more I saw it was incredible. And it just goes to show you that some plants will only reveal themselves to you, it seems, after you've given up your exhaustive search for them. So there's something to be said about going out without goals. Just go and see what you see, and you never know what you're going to stumble into. And it was such an incredible experience. For those of you that don't know this plant, please look it up. Orobanchi uniflora. It's a single stem that comes up out of the ground that's kind of yellowish in color. It's fuzzy. There's a a calyx, I guess, or some sort of, I don't know. I guess it's a calyx around the actual floral tube that's got five little spikes on it. And then the flowers themselves are tubular kind of purple and fuzzy, a little bit light-colored lavender, and a little orangey spot on the lip. It's just a charming little plant. So happy I got to see it. All right, what do I have for you today? This is going to continue our conversations from the second International Orchid Bee Symposium in Costa Rica. Today we're talking to Dr. Scott Armbruster, who is an evolutionary ecologist at the University of Portsmouth. Dr. Armbruster studies a unique group of plants that are actually proving to be quite the model organism when it comes to studying the evolution of floral architecture and pollination syndromes. He works with a genus called Delchampia, and they are Euphorbiaceae. Most of them are climbing vines. There's a few sub-shrubs, as you'll hear, and they have bizarre flowers, even by Euphorbiaceae standards. They have the basic setup, but it's been highly modified, 
and you kind of have to see it to believe it. A lot of them carry these or sport these two large colorful bracts which range in colors from green all the way up to purples and reds and pinks that encase this inflorescence which the technical term is cyathium, and like many other Euphorbiaceae, these produce glands which secrete resin, and that's where the bees come in. I'm going to let Dr. Armbruster explain all of this. Again, we did this outside. There's some great rainforest sounds going on in the background, and I think you're really going to enjoy this topic. It is absolutely fascinating, and thanks to Dr. Armbruster's dedication to this group, the Delchampia are possibly the most studied of all of the Euphorbiaceae, and this is what just endless curiosity and a passion for these plants can do for a group of organisms. It's, it's people like Dr. Armbruster that really further our understanding at the species level and even at the genus level where a lot of ecologists kind of wax over and paint these broader brush strokes, which is important as well. It's people like Dr. Armbruster that are focusing in and telling us about the species we actually know and love. And it's a fascinating conversation and I highly recommend you track down his research, which I will have posted links to on uh, the page for this episode. Just a reminder, we still have stickers for sale. Indefensiveplants.com slash shop. Head on over there. I'm going to be adding some new things in the shop very shortly, so stay tuned for that. But the stickers with the lovely Indefensive Plants logo designed by Tom Pearson, they're up there. They're waterproof. You can pretty much put them on anything. And the best part is 50% of every sticker purchase is donated to the North American Orchid Conservation Center. So it's going to a good cause. All right, enough rambling out of me. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Armbruster. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for sitting down with me. How about we start with an intro? Tell us a little about who you are and what it is you do. Well, I'm currently a professor of ecology and evolution at the University of Portsmouth in the south of the UK, but I live on the Isle of Wight, so I commute by ferry. And I grew up in California, got my PhD at UC Davis, took a job in Alaska for about 15 years, moved to Norway and worked there for seven years full-time and then another 10 years part-time, and now I'm in England. And what are you studying exactly? I work on the evolutionary evolutionary history basically um, and the contemporary selective pressures that operate in plant insect interactions with a focus on pollination with secondary interest in herbivory and seed predation. Excellent. Now one of the reasons you're here is because this is an orchid bee symposium and one of the the genera that you work with is a group of euphorbia that have entered into a relationship if you will with orchid bees. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which, which genus is that? The genus is kind of an obscure name. It's, it's uh, named by Linnaeus after a French botanist who had the name of Dalachamp, and he called it Dalachampia. And uh, it actually was based on a specimen or a drawing of a specimen collected and, and drawn by Plumier, who was a Jesuit monk on the island of Martinique. Mm. And somehow Linnaeus got a hold of this drawing and said, oh, this is clearly a new genus and a new species. So he called it Dalachampia scandens, awesome. based on a drawing, which was actually inaccurate in the <laughs> sense that it had tendrils on the drawing, and Dalachampia never has tendrils. But otherwise, it was a pretty good drawing. Okay, so you say tendrils. I usually associate tendrils with vines. Are these vining yes, plants? Yes, these are mostly vines. Okay. That species is definitely a, a, what's called a twining vine, which means no tendrils. Uh, it just wraps 
clockwise up around things as it grows. Mm -hmm. And there are 130 species or so, uh, about 100 of those, maybe a little more than 100 are, are vines. And there are um, three or four independent origins of shrubby habitat from mm -hmm. the vines. So there are some shrubby species, but the majority, the vast majority are vines. Fascinating. Now, one of the more interesting aspects of euphorbias are always their flower morphology, and across the board, it's it's pretty strange. But I think Delchampia probably wins, or is up there at the top of one of the weirder floral morphologies. Do you care to describe that sure. a little bit? Well, it it's a it's kind of like a primitive cyathium. So cyathium is what a euphorbia has, which is where the male flowers have been reduced to one stamen each mm. and the female flowers have been reduced to one pistil each so it looks exactly like a flower but structurally it's an inflorescence but so Dalachampi is like that except in this case the male flowers are not nearly so reduced they have sepals and they have many stamens uh, and there are about typically ten male flowers in, the, in this pseudanthial inflorescence it's technically called which is a like a like a composite it's a like a sunflower it's a bunch of little flowers coming hmm. together to work in common for pollination. So we have, in addition to these ten male flowers, there's three female flowers, which are, again, they're just uh, styles, stigmas, and ovaries, and, uh, and some sepals at the base. So they look completely unlike the male flowers, and, and yet they are very distinctively flowers. You wouldn't mistake them for being just a pistil, as you would in a euphorbia. And then they're subtended by two, in most species, two large petaloid bracts, which are often very colorful. Mm, indeed. And uh, open and close. So open by day, closed by night. So they're very clever that way. Wonderful. And uh, are they producing scents? Um, so all, probably, I speculate that all species, or nearly all species, produce some scent in the same way that a, a rose produces scent. Mm. Um, but that there are certain species that produce scents to attract male euglossine bees and other species that produce resin to attract female euglossine bees. Wow, so one of the more interesting aspects of the ecology of these bees is the fact that males and females are looking for vastly different things. And when you say resin, what do you mean by that? Well, in the case of Dalachampia, these are mixtures of oxygenated triterpenes. So this is a, a chain of C of, of 30 carbons with uh, oxygen and hydrogen added on to the to the corners, if you will. Um, so these are long chain structures. Uh, although I don't think any of them are cyclic, they're squalenes in the same kind of group of compounds, and some some of these will be cyclic. That is, make a, a round chain, if you will, interlinked. Um, and these are collected by female bees for constructing their nests. They're mm -hmm. waterproof. Some resin, plant resins are antimicrobial, and they're structurally quite strong, and some of them become hard and firm, others remain soft and pliable. Mm -hmm. And having a workable resin is important for the bees, because of course they have to collect it when it's soft, they have to build their nests out of it when it's soft, and in some cases they, like with the the cells that the larvae are in, the larvae have to get out, so if they hardened as hard as a rock, <laughs> they would have problems. So. Right. Uh, floral resins produced by Dalachampi and also by the Clusia tree are uh, very, very slow to harden. The exact chemistry of that is not entirely clear, but it's probably because it's a complex mixture of compounds. And so it makes it a, also a predictable, renewable resource for the bees. W unlike a sap dripping out of a tree they might collect, but it, yeah. it will harden up and, and heal over within a, within a, a week or less, hmm. whereas Dalachampi will and Clusias will keep blooming over extended periods, yeah. giving a, renewing that resource for them.
Now, you have an impressive publication record on this group, and you've studied a lot in regard to the evolution of this. Did they start out as being attractive to Euglossian bees, or is this something that they kind of probably had a different pollination mechanism and then have become more specialized through time? Well, the, it's hard to say. We know that the sisters to this group are probably pollinated by nectar-feeding or pollen-collecting bees, probably not Euglossian bees. Mm -hmm. Uh, and somewhere in the murky past, which, of which we have no record, <laughs> the, um, the proto dalashampia the ancestor to all the modern Dalashampias, uh, started producing resin to protect probably its male flowers in bud. Interesting. Uh, so it, it, resin is very common, but all uses, other than these special studies that we've done on floral resins, all plant resins are known as, uh, if they're known, it's known at all, their function, it's, the function is defense. Hmm. And they're both mechanically and chemically defensive in, in most plants. And it's likely that that's how this originated in Dalashampia, attracting female bees, to, uh, perhaps Euglossian bees, uh, which collected that resin sort of on an incidental basis, and then by accident actually sort of played the role of pollinator, and they were so good at it, then that selection drove them to not only produce more resin, but to produce it in a concentrated glandular form, which mm. no longer served the purpose of defending the male flowers, but was really good and easy to collect by the female bees. So it improved the wow. attractiveness of the flower to the bee because it was now more rewarding. And it also caused the bee to orient in a more regular fashion, which mm. made it a better, became a bilaterally symmetrical structure and causes the bee to land in the right way. Uh, with respect to getting pollen on the right part of the body and depositing it on the stigmas from the right part of the body. Wow. Yeah, and it's, it's really well illustrated in the diagrams you showed us, which I will post links to your publication so that people can mm -hmm. see those, but when you say that these evolved as defense compounds originally in the plants and now the bees are using them, one has to beg the question, do you think that this could have been, other than just structurally building uh, chambers and such, do you think it's providing any defensive benefit or antimicrobial benefit for the bees? Well, we've, we've tested that. I had a, a graduate student who looked at this sort of thing in, in Clusia and found they were antimicrobial, and he also looked in Dalashampia. His name is John Lokvam, by the way. And in Dalashampia, he found no evidence of antimicrobial properties, but in Clusia, very strong hmm. antimicrobial, particularly antibacterial properties, suggesting that they may well be um, useful for the bees in terms of keeping down the bacterial growth and possibly fungal growth as well. Cool. So what are the male bees doing when they're visiting the flowers then? If they're not building cells, what are they up to? So in uh, at least three, probably four lineages, the Dalashampia flowers have abandoned producing resin and instead produce fragrances. Hmm. And they've done it in a couple of ways. The, the classic one is that the same gland is there, but instead of that gland, instead of it secreting resin, it secretes a monoterpene fragrance and we know that monoterpenes are biosynthetically related to triterpenes so a monoterpene is a chain of 10 carbons okay. and remember that triterpene is a chain of 30 carbons and to build those 30 carbons classically anyway uh, you need to take uh, s these precursors um, C5s, C10s, C15s and typically you take two C15s put them together and you get a C30 there is some controversy and discussion about what the bio biosynthetic pathways are across all plants. It's gone from 
thinking there was one way it was done to thinking now maybe there's a lot of diversity in these biosynthetic pathways. But my hypothesis is that the C10s were being produced originally to create these triterpene resins, and by accident a synthase was lost that caused a, basically just a short circuit and shunting hmm. out of fragrances that were by accident attractive to male bees, and that sent up a basically instantaneous speciation, reproductive isolation, <laughs> and off it went with the independent history, which then led to the origin of three or four more species doing wow. the same thing. So that's one way. The other way is what I call advertisement fragrances produced by the stigmas, which is a bit strange to start with, yeah. and then by accident, just a few of these were attractive to male bees, which were good pollinators, and they sort of took over, and they s these species stopped producing a lot of resin arranged in a right. gland to attract females. So, so that's happened probably in three lineages. Wow. So the stigmas producing odor, or this fragrance—that's that's pretty unique, right? I mean, it was thought that that couldn't happen. Yeah, I was told by a reviewer of either one of my papers or one of my proposals—I forget which—that this is well known to be impossible. <laughs> therefore, you've made a mistake in interpretation. Whoops. But as you saw from my slides, the yeah. bees have also made the same mistake because male bees, when they're collecting fragrance, they they use their front legs to mop it up, and they're mopping up something from those stigmas. Yeah. And if you separate out the parts of the flower and you put them in little bottles and smell them, you will smell the fragrance that is so strong in these, these flowers. Mm. It comes from the female parts, not the bracts, not the male parts. So, so both your nose and a GC mass spec and the bees confirm that's <laughs> where it's coming from. Multiple lines of confirmation. Yeah. Take that, Mr. Reviewer. Yeah. So it's producing it from the stigma, and they have to scrape it to get it off, but that seems pretty counter to what a stigma's function is. It's to hold on yeah. to the pollen, right? Yes, this is a bit of a mystery. and um, The only thing I can, can guess is that independently, all of these lineages have evolved pendant flowers. So normally they're facing sideways, okay. these blossoms. And in the lineages that produce the fragrance from the stigmas, the, f the blossom is pendant, that is hanging down. So the bee has to fly up and grab onto it, and it's mostly focusing its, its mopping up of these fragrances from the tip of the stigma. So I'm guessing that maybe pollen gets up higher mm. and is less likely to be dislodged. But it's a bit of a mystery because it's like, well, how does the pollen stay on the right. stigma if you have these males cleaning them off to brush up the... So that's that's not really well resolved at this point, but I'm guessing that maybe the dependent nature of it is part of the part of the story, part Keep of the answer. Keeping them at a the keeping tip them at the tip and not not allowing yeah. them to mop the entire surface really efficiently, like they might if they could land on it and wander all over. The thing that really blew my mind was seeing which species is this, just so people know. Well, the one with the really expanded um, stigmas is Dalshampia that I showed a picture of this yeah. Dalshampia fragrance. So fragrance has this long, what looks like a very long style, but you in fact said that the whole elongated organ there is actually the stigmatic surface, so it's all receptive to pollen? Um, yes, uh, um, almost all Dalshampia have a very extended stigmatic surface, but this oh, one's okay. extreme. Yeah. And yeah, so it, I mean, it is a style, but the stigmatic surface wraps back down around the style. Okay. And uh, quite what the de development of that is is not clear. I mean, I've never looked at mm. it in a um, you know, sort of with SEM developmental s s techniques, but but um, Peter Endress has looked a little bit at it, and uh, and he comes to the same conclusion that indeed the stigma does has evolved in most of these species to extend halfway 
two-thirds of the way, three-quarters of the way down the style. So mm. pollen grains will germinate there. But as I pointed out the other day, that any pollen tube that enters into the, into the tissue, it has to grow all the way to the tip of the style before it is allowed to turn around and come back wow. down towards the ovule. So it grows backwards. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's yeah. quite strange. Is there any sort of hypothesis as to why that could be? Well, I have a sort of mathematical model that suggests that by doing that, you increase the um, intensity and the fairness, proportional fairness, of pollen competition. Huh. So remember, pollen grains are sort of in a competitive race to get to the ovules. There's only three ovules in each flower, so oh, only really? three pollen grains can be the fathers. So, and there might be a hundred pollen grains land right. on the stigma, so it's very intense competition as to which one gets there wow. first. So if they all land at the same time, the ones that land on the side would have a very short distance to grow if they were allowed to go grow straight mm -hmm. to the, the ovary and the ovules and fertilize the egg. So by forcing them to grow backwards, it actually makes it a bit more fair for the ones on the tip. Hmm. And it's, uh, as for an American, I uh, argued this is a bit like half-court basketball. <laughs> you can't go straight to the basket if you've, right. you've got to go back to, to, the, uh, to the middle of the court because you're only playing on half a court. Yeah. It makes the game closer to a full-court game. Right. So it's just like that. So it might not be obvious, but pollen competition would be a way of increasing uh, or potentially selecting for more fit paternal lines. Yes, exactly. Wow. That's the hypothesis. There's mixed data about it. I, I guess the bulk of the data supports that it's going on. Yeah. Um, another, another suggestion that actually my group made was that it's also a way to screen out the negative effects or some of the negative effects of inbreeding depression. Oh, because um, pollen grains, remember, are haploid, sure. and that pollen tube uh, expresses in the process of growing. There's a lot of cell function going on there, a lot of physiology, and up to 60, 70 percent of the genome is expressed in the wow. process, according to a little bit of work that's done in corn and a few other crop species. So a lot of the genes are expressed in the process of getting the sperm to the egg. And in racing down that style is a, is a pretty energetically expensive process. It's yeah. one of the fastest growing um, structures in, in, in the plant kingdom. That's remarkable. Because it's, uh, you know, you've got a style uh, two centimeters long and maybe it takes uh, an hour to grow down it. So it's really? pretty fast. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> so, so genes are being expressed. If you have um, deleterious alleles that are recessive, they're not recessive when it's haploid. Yeah. There's no, recess no recessiveness in the haploid condition, so they huh. will be expressed, which means that they will show their weakness. It can't be, you know, hidden in the, yeah. in the, in the diploid condition in a heterozygous state. So that means that the mother can screen out inferior pollen that would potentially create um, inbreeding depression. Amazing. Now, when you see multiple species lined up, you'll notice that those bracts, many of them are very colorful. There's pinks, there's whites, there's greens, so there is a visual component to these flowers. Have you seen any patterns into uh, habitat preference, pollinator preference, and what these colors are showing, or is that relaxed because of these fragrance and resin compounds? Yeah, clearly the in most species the bracts are brightly colored or at least prominently displayed against the vegetation by being white pale green, sometimes pink or mm -hmm. yellow. So I think that the selection there is to be visible to the bees, even though of course the reward is the resin or the fragrance, and, and there are odors they can cue to as well, but it gives them an associative learning cue. 
But whether it's pink or white, um, I think there's no there's no correlation with any difference in the pollinators. Mm -hmm. um, the, there is a slight weak correlation after you correct for phylogeny that could just be a coincidence or it could be a real thing going on. It's about one chance in ten that it's just, just coincidence. And that is that the small hypanthidium and other um, and megachylid bees that are not eugosian bees but do use resin in their nest construction are disproportionately common on species with leaf green bracts, deep green bracts. And they're not very visible to the human eye. They may be more visible in, like in ultraviolet, with mm. which the bees can see. Uh, so to us, they look very obscure. And, <laughs> and uh, these smaller bees um, seem to be disproportionately associated with those as pollinators. Hmm. But uh, whereas the big euglossine bees are much more commonly associated or somewhat more commonly associated with white or pink or uh, pale green that we, s we see as different than the color of the vegetation. Right. Wow. But there's a huge radiation in color which we don't think is related to selection generated by pollinators except to be showy. Mm -hmm. And then the solution to that can take several forms. And what we found is that all the, all the species with pink brats also have anthocyanins deployed elsewhere in the plant perhaps for protective functions. Mm, right. So becoming pink might just reflect the fact that, well, anthocyanins are already being produced for protecting buds and leaves, young leaves and things, and perhaps that's just the, easy, the root of easiest way of displaying sure. showiness or responding to selection for showiness is to use those anthocyanins to look different than leaves. Huh. A lot of things to think about. And that's what's incredible is you've spent a lot of hours, a lot of time working on this group, and I think your your work is proof that uh, for every question you answer, it opens up doors to many, many, many more questions. So, what's next? I mean, where do you go with this? What's what? It, what kind of questions are you still aching to answer? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, we we still have a at this point. I I need to do some taxonomic cleanup. <laughs> um, almost every floristic treatment that includes Delachampia is wrong because wow. the taxonomy is, is, there are many taxonomic mistakes, including species that I haven't described yet. You can't really blame anybody <laughs> for that except me. But, but there are a lot of synonymies that are wrong where people have pooled things that are actually quite different. We have the advantage of having done the molecular right. work, so we know that you know, two things that are kind of similar but kind of different really are different because of their, of their DNA signature. Um, so I, that's not my highest intellectual priority, but it's something I feel I want to, um, before I leave the world, I want to leave, <laughs> leave the systematics of Dallas-Trumpy in better shape so that somebody who wants to continue working on it from an evolutionary perspective or just for floristics and conservation, mm -hmm. it, you don't know you have a rare species if somebody hasn't put a name on it. Certainly. So, um, so that's one, one thing that is definitely on the doorstep um, to keep plugging away at getting some of this backlog of new species described. We're also interested in conflicting selection. You know, we have evidence that herbivores or sea predators select on the same traits that the pollinators do. Mm -hmm. And how does that balance out? We heard some in some of the other talks about weevils that are selecting on the flowers and there's a cost to being showy or having a strong scent and that right. your enemies can respond to it as well. And we have the same thing going on with Delachampia with not so much scent, we haven't really got evidence of that, but definitely selecting on, so the weevils that feed on the seeds 
find the, the, fla the blossoms in the same way that the pollinators do by looking for these large showy bracts. Right. If the bracts are smaller, you get fewer weevils, but fewer pollinators. So we'll continue doing that. <laughs> and then um, I'm always hopeful that we'll find some amazing new pollination system. <laughs> Uh, I mean, when we started uh, working on this in the 70s, um, male euglossian pollination was hardly known, and it certainly wasn't expected outside of orchids, except for maybe anthurium at that point, mm. so some aeroids never expected or predicted in euphorbs, so that was kind of a, a, a discovery and an unexpected result that I wouldn't say changed the history of pollination ecology, <laughs> but it, it certainly made people more aware that, oh wait, there's more things going on with euglossine pollination than just orchids. And similarly, uh, resin at the time was never really understood to be, a, to be a reward for bees. Yes, bees use resin in their nests, but they probably get it from tree sap or something. Mm. And to find that, that a number of flowers in, in several genera were, were using this as a way of attracting pollinating bees was pretty much a new thing. So I'm and then we found several new uh, unexpected pollination systems in Madagascar, and so I'm always hopeful that we'll right. find some other really unexpected twist. Yeah. Um, so it's still at the stage of discovery, Wonderful. and uh, and filling in natural history. But my long-term goal is to be able to get a historical perspective on how this all happened, when this all happened, right. and how does what's the interaction between moving between continents because this plant is found all around the world in the tropics west of Wallace's line basically wow. so it gets to Indonesia uh, it's absent from Australia but basically Indonesia to South America throughout the tropics anything below about 2,000 meters has got hmm. probably got some Dalashampi in it and I'd like to have a better idea of what are the costs and advantages of moving between continents. Can you take your pollinators with you? Do you evolve new pollinators? Mm. How has that come about? That, most of that work's done, but I still need to write it up. And then we're also looking at um, phenotypic selection. So can we measure selection in the field? And if so, does uh, selection in one place differ from selection in another place? And do we see that the populations differ in a way that's consistent with the selective pressures mm. we can detect? And if so, what's the genetic basis of those differences? Uh, putting all that together is, is a lot of a lot of greenhouse work as well <laughs> as field work. Exciting, so, though. Yeah. Yeah. And I just I what I really admire is how multidisciplinary all of these approaches have been. I mean, chemistry, genetics, field biology, botany. It's 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 remarkable, and it's uh, it, it's so nice to see such a long, like fruitful career and with a genre that probably most people have yet to encounter in their lives. So. Yeah, it's been a really good model system for me, in the sense of what we call now a non-model model system. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning it's not a Rabidopsis. It's not a Rabidopsis, <laughs> but it, it's uh, enough diversity in ecology and inter in terms of its interactions with pollinators especially, and morphology, but not so much as to be overwhelming. 130 sure. species you can get a handle on <laughs> what the evolutionary history is to some extent getting a good phylogeny yeah. and uh, find most of those. I mean, I think we have 80 taxa in our tree now, 80, at least populations, it's arguable as to just exactly how many taxa those represent, but it's certainly more than 50. So we have, we have probably a, a little over half the species are represented. There's some big gaps in Brazil, and I'm now collaborating with a number of Brazilian students, oh, so hopefully we'll fill some of those gaps. Great. 
Yeah, so it's been a it's been a very good system, and my patience in sticking with yeah. with this, which I actually started for my thesis. Wow, and <laughs> I'm still working with it. Amazing. Yeah, so this was my thesis project, and I'm still working on my thesis project. Yeah. I guess you could say. It's I love it. It's a testament to your passion and drive. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we've only scratched the surface here. If people want to know more, find out more. Do you have a website, or how do you recommend people find out about your work? I'll post it, obviously, but yeah. Um, if they go to the University of Portsmouth, they do a good job at making almost everything I've written publicly available on their website. Um, they're often not the fancy reprints because there are legal issues that preclude them from posting PDFs, but there'll but be some right. sort of a Word file that's a sort of has everything in it for the newer things. I think some of the older stuff they have the PDFs, but so that's um, if you just search my name and then put University of Portsmouth. Mm -hmm. Uh, they will find it that way. It's it's basically port.ac.uk, and Wonderful. then they will be on the Portsmouth website and pop my name into a search or go to the biology department and then look under staff. They'll find that way. And then if they, they'll get my webpage, and then at the bottom there'll be a link to, I don't know, scientific contributions or research or something like that. And that will open up basically most of the papers I've done. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Aaron Brewster, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us. Pleasure. Yeah, cheers. Del Champia, you have to look them up. In fact, I was doing that a little bit earlier and I realized a handful of those species have actually made their way into the horticultural trade so you can get your hands on seeds and grow your own. They're freaking gorgeous and really bizarre. If you like subtlety and like nuances to plant anatomy, this is a, a species you kind of want to get up close and personal with. There's a lot going on in uh, each of their inflorescences. I, I highly recommend it. Go in and checking them out. I thank him for taking the time to talk to us. Again, this was a very busy week for everyone that was down there. Lots of talks, lots of networking and that had to be done, and, and people were collecting data, so it was great to have the time to sit down and talk with him. Again, go check out his research. It's fascinating stuff. I've got a lot of great interviews coming up. A lot of big announcements in the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned, and the best way to do that is to hit that subscribe button. And wherever you subscribe to this podcast, consider giving it a review. Reviews help the podcast reach a wider audience, and they help me make a better podcast for you, the listener. If we're going to cure plant blindness, we need more people listening, so thank you to all of my recent listeners. Thank you to all of my longtime listeners. Let's get the word about botany out there. All right, everyone. Until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios.